Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Clean Tech, a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less. Today is Friday, November 17th, 2023. I'm Renewable Energy World Editor-in-Chief John Engel. Shannon Osaka from the Washington Post will be joining us shortly. But for now, I'm joined as always by Clean Tech PR veteran Mike Casey of TigerCom. Hello, Mike. Hello. Happy Thanksgiving to you, my friend. What are your plans? Where are you guys going, if anywhere? We are driving to my wife's family's area of uh, Ohio, so we get to spend a week in beautiful Dayton, Ohio. And and no disrespect to the the folks of Dayton, Ohio, but I say that with a smile um, right. because we well, are I'm we a, are there I, for family and no one else. I'm an Ohioan, <laughs> so watch your step there, Bucko. All right. yeah, and I, I won't change anything that I just said because of that. Um, <laughs> all right, Mike. So we also have to thank our listeners who have been uh, sharing their stories each week and suggesting clean techers of the week. So to do that, please email this week in clean tech at tigercom.us. You see that on your screen and you can check that out in the episode description as well. And before we start, we'd like to mention our clean techer of the week is that this is our third one. Um, this week, we've got a nomination from Electric Power Engineer CEO Hala Blues for a member of her team, Sarah Chatterjee, Director of Electrification Strategies and Programs at Electric Power Engineers. Sarah and her team's work with uh, Paducah Power System on EV readiness is creating a plan that will be a blueprint to helping others across the industry with their electrification journey. The plan forges a path that combines technical expertise with a commitment to diversity, equity, and affordability, where electric mobility is not only reliable, but also genuinely represents the needs and wants of the community. So congratulations to Sarah Chatterjee, our clean techer of the week. Good going, Sarah. Hey, just listeners, just want to tell you, um, a lot of people have praised us for having this feature, but we need to hear from more of you on these nominations. So John and I aren't scrambling around to to tap our own to networks, our networks for yeah. people. So uh, anyway, those of you who like this feature, this is not a high bar to clear. It could be anybody. Someone just thoughtfully brought bagels into the team. We'll take it. You know, we just want to give people a shout out here because clean tech work is not easy. We want to give a shout out to people who do good things. And don't make me make Mike Casey the clean techer of the week because I really don't <laughs> want to do that. And it's his word and it's just, it's, it's, it's a little gross. So Mike, why don't you get us started? Let's get on the rails here. <laughs> All right, so all right? crack a joke, crack a joke, get me laughing, and then throw me the hot potato. Thanks, John. It, this is really good. So our first story of the week is Zach Bright and Brian Dabbs from E&E News. Is advanced nuclear in trouble? What's next after new scale cancellation? John, your thoughts? Yeah, so qualifying, this was the end of last week, but boy, what, what a big story it was, not just for clean energy, but for nuclear. Turbulent week in that world. New scale, the trailblazer for small modular reactors, SMRs, 
slammed the brakes on its Idaho project, citing a lack of subscribers, fueling concerns about the viability of nuclear in the Biden era. NuScale is the only U.S. developer with an SMR design approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and we know that's a very high bar to clear. But it looks like the Biden admin, which sunk $200 million into that project, is undeterred, saying they got good value out of the project because of what they learned from it. Mike, what do you take? You know, I I don't want to disappoint the legions of nuclear bros that are on LinkedIn, but I, I, I don't think this stumble is much of a surprise. I think it's more of a reality check for those who are banking on nuclear as a clean energy savior. So although SMRs are designed for replication, they're, they've just been too expensive for, for developers to bring online. And um, I like this quote from the Union of Concerned Scientists, Edward Lyman, quote, there's a nuclear bubble out there, but I think this might be the first one to pop. You know, as an outsider, I do think there's a case, a defensible case for nuclear power as part of the clean energy mix. It's not my viewpoint, but I think there's a defensible one. But I think the advocates would do better if they acknowledge that nuclear is really a taxpayer underwritten technology. It's not a private sector clean energy offering on par with wind and solar. And I think it would be more accurate, probably better received and require less puffery if it was more accurately positioned. John, what's story number two? Yeah, last point on that one, Mike, just had a thought that there are some investor-owned utilities of the uh, vertically integrated nature who have put major bets on SMR technology in the near term. So calling for 2030, 2035 for these to be providing real resource adequacy. So either that's a good sign that SMR will continue to get the investment it needs, or it's another sign that maybe utilities are giving us kind of false hope around emerging technology versus investing in what we know works today. Story number two is from Nick Visser from the Huffington Post titled, Alarmed by Climate Change, U.S. and China Forge New Partnership to Tackle Fossil Fuels. Mike, are you optimistic or skeptical? Put me down as cautiously optimistic. I Global climate destruction is a global challenge, and seeing the U.S. and China, even the heavyweight polluters, even talking about teaming up to work on this despite the current tensions is a positive sign. You know, on a personal note, one of my best friends has a son who's a new Marine Marine Corps officer, and anything that can be done to get China's government working toward problem solving instead of throwing its weight around the South China Sea is a good thing. Um, the new plan is for tripling global renewable capacity is a moonshot, but aiming high is how we will make a dent in this crisis. And I think if both nations put even some of the walk in this talk, we're going to see a significant reduction in fossil fuel reliance. Details and execution are going to tell us all that we need to know because they're going to speak much louder than the words that have been already offered. John, what do you think? Yeah, a a lot of um, ink spilled on the emissions reductions talks uh, floating around this negotiation between Biden and Xi. But I think that what interested me most was more of a footnote in a lot of the reports that they're also talking about clean energy trade and supply chains? And how do we ensure that the batteries and wind turbine blades and solar panels that we know we need can um, support the energy transition? And obviously, we have a kind of messy tariff fight on the solar side, and on the battery side with the US and China. But to get that sorted out, even to a degree would be very significant, in my opinion. So I'm, I'm hopeful that something comes out of that. Mike, a, what's our third story? Yeah, that's a very good point. You just made my friend. Um, 
So our third story is from Bloomberg's David Baker and Michelle Ma. It's called Plug Power Shares Tank Most in a Decade on Hydrogen Crunch. John, this seems like, I think, a pretty big one. What do you think? Yeah, this is tough news. So shares of hydrogen and fuel cell producer Plug Power took a nosedive last Friday, plummeting up to 45%, the largest intraday decline since 2013 for that company. Listeners will recall my interview with Plug Power CEO Andy Marsh on Factor This back in September, where he raised concerns about the lack of clarity on green hydrogen's eligibility for tax incentives under the IRA. He said at the time that green hydrogen was under attack, but he also told me that um, capital was readily available. So it, it makes me curious about you know the next steps here. Marsh is highlighting the enormous challenges in hydrogen supply. Power outages impacted a third of U.S. liquid supply, including at Plug's Tennessee plant. But they're optimistic about a year-end recovery. Downgrades from five analysts, which is not promising for this um, for this stock, but for the company um, more broadly. And they are involved in uh, at least one of the DOE's seven billion dollar investment in hydrogen hubs. I believe they're in the Appalachian hub, if I remember correctly. And Plug Power followed up that earnings call and and poor news on the financial side with a filing to the SEC that we reported on at Renewable Energy World, warning of substantial doubt over its ability to continue as a company without new financing in the next 12 months. They're required to tell the SEC if they're in peril, and it appears they are. You know, part of the maturing as a sector is handling the inevitable downs, not just the ups. And I think it's safe to say that clean energy is experiencing several of those at once. We've seen the Avangrid and Orsted walk back from offshore wind projects. You've got residential um, solar stocks that are getting hit, Enphase, Sunrun, SunPower, SolarEdge, all down more than 50% to date this year. The verdict from the sector analysts is that clean energy is having to find its way through an an era of rising interest rates and rising costs. But I I have to say that I think the case for these technologies is so strong that I think this period is going to turn out to be the stone that sharpens the knife and we're going to emerge better from this period. John, what do you think of the, what's our fourth story? Yeah, our fourth story comes from Shahua and uh, Fred Dvorak from the Wall Street Journal titled China's spending on green energy is causing a global glut. Mike, what'd you think? I have to find myself wondering what it will take to get the headline writers, the Wall Street Journal to stop using the Solyndra era Fox News term green energy. Nobody in this industry actually uses that term. So Hmm. for the newspaper, (laughs) the business newspaper of record is still continue to use that term tells me a little bit about their level of attachment to what's actually happening in the sector. That aside, it paints a picture of China's green spending spree and its ripple effects globally. And according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, the country spent $80 billion on clean energy manufacturing last year. Uh, Prices of Chinese polysilicon have dropped 50%, panel prices down 40% this year alone. More than 70 Chinese companies got into solar manufacturing in 2022. It's an electric, it, a, a very eclectic mix, a, a dairy giant, a jewelry chain, even a pharmaceutical company. There is an upside to cheap components for clean energy, but there's also got global consequences that are going to ripple 
through manufacturers across the world. John, your thoughts? Yeah, I'll be quick because I want to get to Shannon from the uh, Washington Post here shortly. But this oversupply is putting pressure on manufacturers worldwide. It's not just in, in one one area with warnings of falling prices, excess inventory and bankruptcies. You're hearing about uh, warehouses in Europe full of gigawatts of solar modules just sitting there. I've heard of quotes out of China. And now this is even a couple of months old now, 15 cents a watt. Uh, for wow. solar modules, which, hmm. you know, you're not getting that through, um, through you know, the trade rules in, in the U.S., but but that's still incredibly cheap. And it's it, it has some real ramifications on manufacturing. And it leads you to question, you know, even with all of the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act, one, is it enough for the domestic supply chain to really ramp up? And then what happens next? Can it survive? Will will China give up in that fight? I don't think so. So um, to to build a lasting and enduring supply chain is a whole other challenge of its of its own. So I, I do hope that we continue to prioritize that even after achieving the victory of the IRA. All right, Mike, what's our last one? It is from Shannon Osaka uh, from the Washington Post, who's going to join us right now. So Shannon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. People haven't read your story yet. Uh, what would you tell them is the number one takeaway? Why don't you give the, he- give the headline first, Mike? What is the story? <laughs> Electric vehicles are hitting a roadblock. Car dealers. All right. Yeah. So I think the number one takeaway for me from reporting the story out was basically we have so much that we're putting into EVs. You know, the U.S. government is behind EVs. We have a lot of automakers who are investing hundreds of billions of dollars in EVs. But if the car dealerships who are still selling the huge lion's share of new electric vehicles and new vehicles overall in the United States, if they aren't on board, that could really slow things down. Shannon, I really appreciated this piece because it it felt uh, a lot like the on the ground reporting that I feel like we miss a little bit on the clean energy side. And I I always love it when I see it. But just pulling back a little bit, there seems to be so much bluster in, in mainstream channels right now about EV sales hitting a wall in part due to economic headwinds, auto worker strike, so on. Your reporting adds another layer to that. But in your research for this story, did the data reflect that perceived downturn? And is it, is it as bad as some say it is, if so? I think it's there's two narratives here, and we have to pay attention to both of them. So one narrative is that we're going to pass 1 million EVs sold this year. We might even hit 1.4 million EVs sold. We are There is a huge EV increase in the U.S., and we're probably going to be about 60% over last year's sales. But that is one side of the story. And a lot of that is still driven by Tesla because we know that Tesla is selling more EVs than anyone else in the United States. The other side of the story is the big three is these old legacy automakers. And there is evidence that their sales have slowed down. One of the big things that a lot of people are pointing to is the fact that EVs are now sitting on dealership lots for twice as long as gas powered cars. Whereas at the beginning of this year, they were staying on the lot about the same amount of time. Now, part of this is that the EV supply is just increasing. And so, you know, then we have the balancing of supply and demand. But at the same time, I think that there is something to the case that the old sort of legacy automakers are seeing a little bit of a slowdown in terms of early adopters and transitioning to mainstream adopters. Shannon, if you had to put the seriousness of the big three legacy automakers 
the seriousness of their EV commitment on a one to five scale. Five being they're deadly serious like Tesla, one being they're just, they're as committed to it as ExxonMobil is to clean energy. <laughs> Where would you put it? I'm just, I know that's an arbitrary question, but you're closer to this than I think a lot of our listeners because of this reporting. I would, okay, so here's what I would say. I would say that in terms of investments, we're at around a four. There's been great investments, but investments are not going to take us all the way there. And we know that in the U.S., the automakers don't have a ton of control over what the dealerships are doing. And so I think that what we're seeing is that the automakers have put all of this effort in and they're now sitting back and saying, okay, is this going to work? You know, we've proposed trainings and stuff for our dealers, et cetera, but the dealers are independent. I mean, these are franchise operators. They don't necessarily have to be on board if their automaker says, hey, you know, we're going to send you a ton of F-150 Lightnings. We want you to sell them. Dealers don't have to do that. They can say, hey, you know what you should buy instead is just the regular F-150. And so I talked to a lot of folks who had gone out and tried to buy EVs and said, look, I went to the dealer. The dealer didn't really understand charging. They didn't really want to sell me the EV. They didn't want to spend time with me to explain the EV to me. So these are the people who are actually trying to go out and buying the car. Now, what happens when people who are just like, I don't know, EV, gas, car, I'm not sure which I prefer. If they go to a dealer, they're probably going to get pushed towards a standard hybrid or a gas car. Well, John, we're just about out of time. I want to give a shout out to our wonderful producer, Brian Mendez, and um, Claire, the factor, Quirin, and Alex Dow, Guy Peterson for handling our story roundups. And we want to uh, thank Shannon Osaka of the Washington Post for joining us this week. Yeah, and please subscribe and give us feedback. Send us those story recommendations and Clean Tecker of the Week nominations. We need those each week. You can also read all of the stories we discussed this week by clicking the links in the episode description, including Shannon's. And check out Monday's episode of Factor This. So we're joined by Ryan Quint, Mike, who oversees engineering and security integration at NERC, so the bulk power system regulator. And we're talking about how inverter-based resources like solar, wind, and batteries are causing some major challenges for the grid. And it's, it's an important message for our developer and asset owners to hear. So I really hope you all check that out. See you next time, Mike. Yeah, we'll be off next week for Thanksgiving. We hope you all safe travels, great time with family, and a relaxing week. Thanks, listeners. Take care. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.